Let's turn to Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 4. It's our last week here. Next Sunday, we turn our attention toward Easter, and we'll be focusing on the person of Christ. Who is he? What can we know about him all the way up through Easter? But today in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to encounter two questions, one question in 4 and one question in 5, that actually dovetail so nicely with where we're heading in subsequent weeks. The church in Thessalonica has a problem, and it it has to do with their view of the end times. What happens when Jesus comes back? Apparently... In this church, they took to heart, maybe too much so, they took to heart that Jesus was going to return and gather them all to himself. I think what happened is they went one step further in, in thinking, our salvation's dependent upon Jesus coming and grabbing us up. So you might imagine if a, a minister like Paul would preach that Christ died, rose again, and will one day return to gather those to him. They took that very, very literally, which meant that when somebody in their fellowship died, it raised concern for them. What happens to that person? Because Jesus can't come get him. And so Paul's going to be responding to that concern. Now, and some of that concern is not our concern, but in his address, in the way he answers it, He's going to say things that minister to to all sorts of folks. Anytime someone close to us dies, we we skirt up close to these sorts of things. I think think plenty of good, God-loving Christian folk at funerals still ask themselves, do I believe that Jesus Christ will save me? And so this is a, this first address that Paul has This is a great opportunity for us to hear clearly the theology of our hope in Christ. That said, I'm only preaching out of 1 Thessalonians, so if you're hoping for a big humdinger end time sermon, this isn't it. This is 1 Thessalonians 4. I believe this chapter has its own integrity I think that Paul starts a thought and ends it perfectly fine. So I think there's, we can learn about the end just fine by staying here in 1 Thessalonians. So <clears throat> let's go ahead and read it. I'm going to pick up in the 13th verse of chapter 4. And you might, again, you might imagine that the looming question is, what about my brother in Christ who died? What happens to him? Verse 13. <clears throat> But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right. The 13th verse, Paul puts two groups in front of us. There's the brethren, the members of the fellowship, and there are the others. There's the brothers and the others. There's those who, verse 14 will sort of edify what is a brother, those who trust in the Lord, believe in his death and resurrection, and trying to follow him. Those who we use the label Christian those who are following Jesus Christ. That is the brethren or the brothers. Then there are the others who he says, who grieve as ones who have no hope. They're people who are outside of the hope that's in Christ. And Paul says, there's a world of difference between these two crowds when the issue of death comes up. When the issue of death comes up, he says, I don't want you, my brothers, to grieve like the others who have no hope. Because he says, because death does not really matter to us. He's going to say that the Lord, since Jesus died and rose again, we know that God will also Bring with him those of us who have fallen asleep. That's what he says. That Christ, by Christ dying and rising again, this is just, this is simple gospel. That by Christ conquering the grave, those who trust in Christ have no fear of the grave. We have hope. In fact, we'll be with him. The, the, actually, the with him there is not so much that we'll rise with him. I, I, I think it's actually more connected to his return. I don't think First Thessalonians is that technical of a letter. So I think the basic gist is that the grave has no enduring power whatsoever over people who trust in the power of God through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Those who trust in Jesus Christ have no enduring fear of the grave. I'm not saying that you, you don't care about living or dying. I'm saying that in the long view, we do not end when we die. Verse 16. Verse 15 and 16 come together in a way that says, listen, those who are alive when Jesus returns, not really that different from those who die. To a church that was confused, what happens if someone dies? Do they still have Jesus? Do they still have hope? He's saying, yes, they still have hope and there really is no big difference between those who, those who died and those who lived. In fact, when Jesus comes again, when 
by his command and by the voice of an archangel, by the trumpet sound of God, that's all depicting when all the authority in heaven is pronounced on earth and God himself comes down, he will first attend to those who've died. He will first raise them up to be with him. You might think of it this way, in the scheme of the things that God's already done and the things that God's not yet done, when Christ comes again, he's going to take care of the things he's already done. Christ has already made death an enduring myth for those who love him. And so when he comes, just as he died and rose again, he's going to make sure that all of those in Christ who have died rise to be with him. At the return of Jesus, there will not be a single human in the history of time that has relied upon the Lord and that has hope in Jesus Christ. None of them will be beneath the earth. They'll rise to be with God. He says, and then, and only then, once God's gathered those who have already fallen asleep in the Lord, then he will reach down and catch us up. That's what it says in 17. We'll be caught up. Those who are alive will be caught up. The word caught up is, it's where we get the word rapture from, by the way. This is actually the place in the Bible where the word rapture is used. You don't see it because it's not actually used. It was used in the Latin. So the, that's where the word got caught on is from the Latin translation of the Bible. But caught up is the theme. To be snatched is the word. Seized. Later on, when Paul is arrested by the guards, they rapture him. Same word. It's, it, the picture is the Lord coming down and snatching us up. That's what he's saying. So here, here this is the picture. When Christ comes again, when he returns as he promised, he will fully vanquish the power of death and the grave to all those who know him. And to those who are alive when he returns, he will grab us to be with him. And the real hope is in the end of 17. And we will be with him forever. That's the real hope. Sometimes the church, uh, the American church has placed a lot of hope and what do we do with the word rapture? I actually think that's a kind of a small concept and kind of a small word the real hope is when Jesus comes, we're going to be caught up with him and we'll be with him forever. That is, that's our Christian hope. Now, the 18th verse says this. He says, Paul tells us, encourage one another in this, which surprised me a little bit. It felt to me as I was doing my studies, like just information, like, okay, this is how it is. And I'm very happy about it but I wasn't thinking I would need to encourage somebody in it. But he commands us to encourage one another in this, which tells me it's not good enough to know it. If I have to encourage you in it, and you have to encourage me in it, and we have to encourage one another in it, that implies that left to my own self, I'm going to forget the truth of it. There's sort of an external responsibility to make sure that person is, lives in remembrance of this. That's what the command means. Continually remind one another of this truth. 
So why do we need to remind each other? I mean, it seems like it's good news enough. Well, why remind one another? Well, I think very practically, just based upon attending funerals, being near death, we do forget these things. I don't mean that we forget they were ever said. I mean we can live as though maybe they're not as true as they are. I think when, when loved ones die, and Paul doesn't say, by the way, we can't grieve. He says we should not grieve like those who have no hope grieve. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He's not saying you can't weep. He's saying we, when, a, when someone who is a follower of Christ dies, they die with hope, not without hope. But sometimes, when someone's suffering loss, the grief of the loss is so overwhelming that they need to be encouraged in this. Maybe not in the very moment, maybe not at the open casket, right? We use wisdom as to how you say this, but friends and brothers and sisters in Christ who have a long view for our good with one another have a notion of the person who is in that, the body in that casket does not represent the person. God has given him hope. That's one place I think very practically I am reminded it's not enough to know this. We have to encourage one another in it. And another place is, has to do with the way you and I live. I think many people, many people, well, let me say this. I think there's an obvious difference between a person who lives life constantly fearful of death. Okay, I'm sort of painting a category here. So a person who's sort of navigating life but fear of death is there, or fear of harm is there, or fear of danger is there. There's always what can go wrong. You know, where is the extra seatbelt? Eats multigrain cereal. Whatever it is those people do. <laughs> right? And then over here are people, and I'm it's another category. It's a category of person where purpose in life trumps danger or cost. Someone who realizes, I'm made for a reason. And when we bring that beneath the umbrella of the Lord, the Lord says, listen, I have conquered the grave so that you can live now. Not just so that when you die, you live, but so that now you can be who I want you to be now. And I think we need to be encouraged in that. I think it's very easy at every, by the way, at every age level, I don't think, we, like, at each, people can find, start preaching to themselves a gospel of safety. The good news is found by me not taking risk, or the good news is found in me building a hedge of protection around myself. And God is not saying, just throw all that stuff to the wind. He's not saying be foolish. God's not trying to recruit daredevils or anything like that. But God is saying if the grave is shepherding you, then I'm not. If the grave is preaching, if the grave has power in your life, then it's in my way. Think of Paul who wrote this. Paul started the letter saying, by the way, you should remember, I came here after getting bludgeoned in Philippi. 
and they know that he was run out of there on a rail. Then he went to Berea and was kicked out of there. And then he went to Athens and wasn't fruitful there. And he experienced persecution, though he persisted in Corinth all through his life. In 2 Corinthians, he finally says, listen, I guess I need to explain to you the hardships I've endured because nothing else is sinking in. Does it matter that I've been beaten this many times and scourged with a whip and stoned to the point of death? That I've been nearly drowned and shipwrecked multiple times? That I've been to the point of starvation? That I've feared for my life? that I've been nervous of wild animals. Does, how does a person like that do those things? It's because he believes that God has conquered the grave. So I think at one level, we can know this. Yeah, we know this. It's true. No, we need to be encouraged in it. And we need to encourage one another in it. Otherwise, we can live some very disappointingly safe lives. Let's look at the second question. So the first one, what happens to people when they die? We who have hope in Christ have hope. Others do not. The second question in chapter five, when is Jesus coming? These are just classic. You know this is a church. Because these are classic curiosities. When is Jesus coming again? Here's what he says. Now concerning the times and seasons, brother, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security... Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Listen to this again. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You hear the pattern. There's a pattern. There's questions, okay, implied questions that Paul's going to respond to about the end. Okay, and at the end is sort of an encouragement. There also happen to be two groups in this reading. Just like before, there were the brothers and the others. Here there's the brothers and the people. So he's going to start. He's going to say, hey, as to when Jesus is coming, I don't have to repeat myself. You already know the answer. You know that... Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. What does that mean? It means we don't know when he's coming. And we can't know when he's coming. Whenever Jesus comes, it will be a surprise. It will surprise us. We cannot, let me just say it this way, we cannot postpone preparation for the arrival of God contingent upon seeing the signs of his return. That's what he's saying. If you want to say, I'm going to, I'm going to like, 
rather than be, I'll give you an early church example. Okay, <clears throat> this is sort of how infant baptism began. Fourth century AD, the position of baptism at the time was that baptism had the power to absolve people of the original sin and of all the sins that they had done prior to baptism, okay? I don't think this is biblical. It was historically held position. So what do you think people who enjoyed sinning would do? Easy. I know this when I'm a sinner. They would postpone their baptism. That's smart thinking if you're a reprobate, right? So St. Augustine's own father is on his deathbed, and they're getting ready to baptize him. And what does he do? Stop. I'll get better. Don't baptize me yet. Because he had a whole lot of sin and he had planned. Okay? The return of Christ, you cannot play that game. As if it should have ever been played in the first place. Right? It was actually Augustine who said, listen, if the cure, if it's a cure, why would we not give it as soon as we can? And the infant baptism bore out of that. Let's bring the cure of forgiveness as early as we can in life. Now, I think that's a wrong, it's a right thinking off a wrong teaching. <laughs> but what, what he's saying here is, is you cannot postpone your preparation in lieu of the return of God because God will show up when you're not expecting it. That's what he's saying. And he's saying there will be people who are saying peace and security all around them and they will be caught there's two images actually given. There's the image of the thief and there's the image of the woman who goes into labor, which labor is about the most apocalyptic image there is. Think of it. You don't know when it's gonna happen. When it shows up, it's happening. You know, you can't sort of like take a, take a little bit of labor here and then schedule a little bit of labor next week. When it, you're having a baby, labor. And then it's traumatic, it's a tribulation. It's, I mean, when you read the apocalyptic literature of scripture, it has this crescendo to a climax of severity, it's pain, it's, it's not good, right? And at the very end, when it just things couldn't get any worse, new life shows up. It's, it's, it's I was gonna say beautifully apocalyptic, but I won't. It's inescapable. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you wait, if you wait, you will be surprised and you'll be caught. You'll be lulled into a stupor with the sensation of peace and security. And then you will find yourself amidst the destruction of the day of the Lord. That's what he's saying. Verse four, but you are not in darkness. You're not in darkness. He's speaking to the brothers. Listen, you who are in Christ, you're not living in darkness. Now he's not saying, Paul does a sort of a, a, a little bit of a, a quirky thing here. He starts to slide the imagery. So at first, he's, the, God's gonna come like a thief in the night. Then he grabs the night and he starts to use it for a different purpose. And he says, listen, if you're in Christ, you're a child of the day, not a child of the night. 
which doesn't mean that you'll, you'll have a good sense of when Jesus is coming, like, well, or that the thief won't come. Rather, you're living ready for his return. That's what he's getting at, is you're, you're ever ready for his arrival. He says he puts two ways of living in front of us. He says there's a way of living in the text, a way of living at night sleeping, drunkenness, or just some examples he gives. There's people who are living as though the thief is not coming. And he says, but you're not like that. If you're following Christ, you're living in the daylight. This is what it says in the book of John. You don't, you'll, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. This is the picture First John, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all wrongdoing. This is, this is the image he's, that Paul's using to say, listen, when we live now, when we live now in the light of Christ, which, you know, we, we preached First John not long ago. The light of living in the light of Christ is sort of, uh, you know, I, I likened it to like the light of a doctor staring in the a dentist staring in your mouth, or a surgeon staring in your body. We sometimes it's painful, but it's illuminating of us. It's the healing surgical light, the saving surgical light of God, when we place ourselves in that light, so that He can begin to work on us and make us who He wants us to be. When we subject ourselves to God. His pure and perfect light will make us ever ready. That's what he's saying. He's saying someone who is living in the light of God has nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Someone who's going to wait has everything to fear. I'll close with this image uh, because there's the, the imagery in Scripture here is of a soldier. He says, put on, put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope for salvation. He's almost saying like, arm yourself for battle. Be alert. Which in my own life conjures up so many experiences. Let me just share with you a little bit about alert. What does it mean to, to be alert? In Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan is very, very unique. You don't have, there's no place where there's a thousand, well, there's about two, okay, Bagram and Kandahar, about the only two places where there's thousands of soldiers, okay? But for the most part, the, the war in Afghanistan was being fought in tiny pockets, sometimes as small as 10 or 15, okay? Sometimes as large as maybe 100, 150, depending on where, how strategic the location is. But they're in very hard to get to places. We would fly out to places where there were 21,000 foot mountains in our orbit to visit with the soldiers on the ground. Okay? Very difficult environment. And there's these small pockets of teams, too small to always have significant resources available. You just can't have airplanes flying overhead on all of these teams all over the place. So what we would do is we, we built alerts. You had, there was always a 30-minute alert, two airplanes ready to go on 30 minutes notice. That means the moment the phone call would come in, our commitment was we would have two airplanes airborne within 30 minutes of the ringing of that phone. 
So what did that mean? It meant that if you were sitting alert, you couldn't be in your sweatpants eating a chocolate muffin. You had to be in your flight suit eating a chocolate muffin. You actually, we had our flight suit and we had our G-suit, you know, the thing that makes you look cool. It's the only reason we wear it. We had our G-suit. We were fully suited up, boots and everything. You weren't wearing tennis shoes. You couldn't go to the gym. You couldn't do any of that. You were in uniform, on call. And before you sat alert, you went out to the jet. And you started the jet all the way up, all the engines, all the systems. Your ops checked everything, made sure everything was good to go. Then you shut everything down in a very calculated way. You shut it down in a way that made it ready to start as quickly as possible. Okay, and when you shut it down, then you took all of your, your helmet off and you set, it in the, you set it in a way, it's difficult to get airborne in 30 minutes, so you set it in a way that was so that you could just reach it. Everything was done. You put your, the maps in exactly the right way and you put the maps you expected to use on the top and over here you'd put, your, we had binoculars, believe it or not, that we'd use and your night vision goggles you would prep and they would sit right here. Everything was, the whole environment of your cockpit was set up just so that you could like a hand in glove hop right into it, and stuff would just fall on you. That was the hope. Because you had to get there. And then you would sort of back out of the airplane carefully so as to not disturb that environment, and you'd hang your survival vest. You'd hang it right on the ladder. Then they'd put guards on your airplane just to protect it because the Marines would steal your stuff. (laughs) And, uh, And then you would go sit. You'd go sit alert. And you would sit, and if the, the horn went off, you'd dive in the back of a pickup truck in the middle of the night, and you'd tear off down the road, and you were ready, is what I'm saying. You were ready. You could not be surprised. That's the commitment. The commitment in that, the notion is, you know, in that place, it's mission-oriented. I will not allow surprise to get between me and what I long to do, how I long to serve. And this is what Paul is saying. Listen, listen, brothers and sisters. This life now is for you to be ready, to live ready. This isn't for you to kind of lull along and occasionally ask a semi-religious question about your spirituality. No, not, that's not what it is. You are called to live in the light of Jesus Christ. You're called to live a life that's fueled by the knowledge that he died and rose again and he's coming for you. And, he, and everything he has for us is not simply to get us across the threshold of death. It's for us right now. God has a goal for us now. He has use for us now. We are not called to be like those who have no hope. I'm going to close with this last verse, verse 23. It's just as a blessing, and I'll just lead it into prayer. This whole season, just here to Easter, I want to make sure you're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to make sure you're having the chance to respond to it. Just each of these weeks. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Lord, I pray this prayer would be true. I pray that the scriptures here, that we would encourage one another in these things. We would know that left to ourselves will be forgetful 
or it'll just turn into knowledge. But Lord, may we encourage one another to live in the light, to pursue righteousness, to long for Christ, to keep the Lord in the front of our minds so that, Lord, we're ever walking ready for what you have for us. Amen.